right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day to humbly come before you. We thank you that we're objects of your grace. We thank you for granting us repentance and faith in your Son, taking us as your own, adopting us once for all. Father, we ask that you bless everyone in our congregation here and our church family, especially those who are sick and struggling and can't be here. We ask that you comfort them in a special way as only you can. And Father, we also ask that you have your word enter our hearts tonight in a way that we can understand. We ask that your Holy Spirit teach us supernatural things. And Father, most of all, we're grateful and thankful for your precious Son, Jesus Christ, for sending him out of heaven to become a man, to once and for all die for our sins and remove our debt from us. Father, we are eternally grateful. Help us to every day just simply be grateful and walk in that gratitude for all the love you've shown us. We ask all these things, Father, in the name of our precious Lord, God, and Savior, Jesus Christ, and it's by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen. The Deceitfulness of Sin, Part 69. So, on Sunday, a few main themes came up. So I'm going to try to, you know, review those and, and give you what the Spirit gave me in my preparation. Um, it might seem a little bit, um, you know, sudden starts and stops, if you know what I mean, jumping from one topic to the next, but that's okay. We're going to review one at a time and see what he has for us and see how it blends as well through the Spirit. So let's start with this idea, uh, just something to think about. Think about this. How about living in a lifestyle of encouragement and peace? Just imagine, think about if your lifestyle, your daily lifestyle, was one of encouragement and peace. Might that sound like a sanctified life to you? A life set apart by God for a life that is contrary to the world? And doesn't that sound like a great life? <laughs> if we actually lived in it, a life of encouragement and peace, if we didn't worry about the details of life, if we didn't get so hung up on ourselves and we just lived in the joy of the Spirit and the love He has for us and passed it on like freely. So we cannot do these things on our own, but by faith, and that's the message, that's one of the repeated messages of the Spirit lately, by faith we can surrender to being or to that being the way of God for us. We can walk in that lifestyle of encouragement and peace if we choose to have faith. And it's a daily proposition. We never arrive. Every day we wake up, we have that same opportunity, that same privilege, and that same test. Are we going to walk by faith or are we going to walk by sight? Are we going to walk by faith or are we going to walk by how we feel? 
So that is the test every day, but that is also the opportunity. And God has this supernatural, peaceful life of encouragement he wants us to live and enjoy. So just think about that as we begin. The Spirit's saying there is a certain way to live in the power of Christ that he desires for us to grab onto. We don't always grab onto it. That's the battle with the flesh, the sin nature. But he desires we grab onto it and enjoy the new life. So on the board, let's just call it living in Christ. If we will abide in the sphere of his love, his peace can overtake us, allowing us to focus on encouraging others as the the day draws near. Colossians 3.15, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Hebrews 10.25. There's an example on the board of living in Christ. If we will abide in the sphere of his love, his peace can overtake us, allowing us to focus on encouraging others as the day draws near. I think of the filling of the spirit, or as pastor says, he fills our sails. There's a power, there's a way that God overtakes us when we choose to abide in his love. And we we basically let him take over and give us energy and give us enthusiasm and give us love and peace and encouragement. So we will get to these verses in a minute, but I, I read Colossians yesterday as it was mentioned in Sunday morning's message. And what an amazing book. If you just want to be encouraged and you just want to see the big picture and see what God wants from you, Go read the four chapters of Colossians. Probably take you 20 minutes. It is just so chock full of encouragement and instruction and uh, the ways of God, encouragement and peace, things like that. It's full of those things. So I encourage you to go read that. But turn in your Bibles to Colossians 3, verse 12. There are a few verses in Colossians that popped out to me, and uh, we'll share those throughout the night. Go to Colossians 3, verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And notice that phrase again. We see it in verse 12. Put on a heart of compassion. And in verse 14, put on love. And we're going to see another one later on tonight, but beyond all these things, put on love. So there's a choice involved. There's a submission involved. Every day, put on love, which is the bond of unity. And then look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Again, it's almost like allow him to take over, to fill your sails, to motivate you. 
let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So simple and pure. It is not supposed to be complicated. In fact, it's the opposite. Sometimes it's so simple, we can't accept it that way. And we, we add to it. We, we put human effort into it. We try to force it rather than just surrender and let him take over. So by faith, we can live in the love and the peace that he sets before us. And we can be encouraged ourselves and we can encourage one another, as came out on Sunday. So I was just thinking, and it's hard to put into words, but following Christ is one of the simplest and purest things possible. It's so simple a child can do it. That's why he said, have the faith of a child. Following Christ is one of the simplest things possible. Now, we've got to learn the word because there's always more to learn. But I'm just talking about the act of learning and obeying. Your parent tells you to do something, and you have the choice to, you know, bicker about it or obey. It is extremely simple. And God hold us, holds us accountable for what we know. So it's not about, you know, worrying about what we don't know. It's about acting on what we know. Obeying, following him. You want me to jump, Lord? I'll jump. You want me to read the book every day? I'll read the book every day. You want me to go out and talk to my neighbor? I'll go talk to my neighbor. Whatever he lays on your heart, whatever the word puts on your heart that day. But a child says, okay, Dad. And we mess it all up. We add to it. It's as simple as see him and follow him. Or learn from him and follow him. And that's the path to peace and encouragement. Like verse 15 again says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. On Sunday, we also heard a lot about the value and power of encouragement, in particular, encouraging others, to our point on the board, and not sitting back and waiting to be encouraged ourselves. After all, it's more blessed to give than receive, right? It doesn't make sense to the flesh, but we know when we give, when we truly give from the right heart, how blessed we are because of it, how happy we are because of it. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 5.11. 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Again, the point on the board regarding living in Christ if we will abide in the sphere of his love, his peace can overtake us, allowing us to focus on encouraging others as the day draws near. Colossians 3.15, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Hebrews 10.25. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Obviously, this refers to someone like your pastor. Uh, don't forget about them. Appreciate them and esteem them highly, very highly, 
in what? Love. And I think sometimes we lose, fat, uh, lose sight of the fact that our pastor is only a man. Um, sometimes we can subtly put someone who's in a position of authority on a pedestal, very subtly in our souls. You might say, oh, I don't do that, but you might do that. And what happens when you do that is you forget that that person in that position is only human and has similar struggles and weaknesses that you do. So don't become too familiar with that fact. And because of the position and the responsibility he has, esteem him very highly in love. Encourage him, as this passage also says. And what came out on Sunday is, let's not fall for sin's trap of familiarity. Back to familiarity again. It seems like it comes up every year or two where it hits us in the face a little bit. And if you think about it, that is an ancient trap from the beginning of time when even Lucifer became familiar with the Lord his God. I think familiarity is one of the greatest deceptions of all in our sin nature, and unfortunately we do it over and over. It's just part of, you know, rescue me from this body of death, Lord, right? Who will save me from this body of death? As long as we're in this body of death, we're going to keep falling into it occasionally because we're just human and we're battling this in nature. But we can pay attention. We can not give in to it. We can catch it right when we're notified by the Spirit somehow or by another person. But we must be on guard for it. I was thinking about familiarity and how it comes at us in waves. Doesn't it? It comes at us in waves. Like if you're in the ocean, right, a wave hits you. And then you get a little break, right? And then it hits you again. And you're like, geez, I didn't see that coming. That's familiarity. It's like I didn't recognize I was in it. I didn't recognize I was doing it. It's kind of like arrogance. Just when we start to think we're doing pretty good, we get arrogant. Right? It, sne it sneaks up on you. It creeps up on you. All of a sudden, you're arrogant because you're starting to get a big head maybe about, about whatever. Maybe your obedience, I don't know, your activity in the church. And all of a sudden, you're arrogant. Boom. Similar to familiarity. So we have to be on guard for it. We have to pray about it. And something I want you all to think about tonight that the Spirit gave me to share with you is that maybe this is why the Bible talks so much about being thankful. Why does the Bible talk so much about being thankful? Maybe it's our uh, protection from becoming familiar and arrogant. So on the board, we might say gratitude protects us. Gratitude protects us. Just think about that. Isn't that like what guards you from those sins of familiarity? The minute we lose thankfulness in our hearts, we fall into the curse of familiarity. And we wrongly start taking people or even God for granted. We all do it, right? Don't get condemned, but repent if necessary, as necessary. 
And what happens when we get familiar, if you think about it, is we end up discouraging people. Forget encouraging people. We end up discouraging people because they see us getting familiar with them, whoever it might be, and that's a discouragement. How come so-and-so doesn't, you know, seem to care anymore or whatever, right? Um, why are they never encouraging me? Or You know what I'm saying. You know the vein. So you can be discouraging people when you're not actively encouraging people because you get this malaise over your being of familiarity. And it's kind of a vicious cycle. So again, on the board, gratitude protects us. The minute we lose thankfulness in our hearts, we fall into the curse of familiarity, and we wrongly start taking people or even God for granted. Go to Hebrews 10.23. Hebrews 10.23. That's the most sickening thing, isn't it? We actually take God for granted. That's amazing. That's the wickedness of sin. Hebrews 10.23 Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All the more. Think about the power in someone saying to you, you can do it, God is with you. I'm sure you've all had something like that at some point in your life, I hope. Think about how you feel when someone says that to you. You can do it. You should go forward in that. God's with you. And you might have been hemming and hawing and doubting, uh, thinking about going back to sit on the couch instead of stepping out by faith. And just at the right time, God brought someone in your path who said something like that to you. And by the way, it might have changed your whole life because you stepped out in faith because someone encouraged you and now your whole life is different because of the domino effect of that, the ripple effect. So we're all weak in the flesh, as we know, and we all need encouragement at times to go forward in the faith, to step out in faith even. And that power is always available in your tongue. Think about the power we have at our fingertips excuse the expression, but in our tongue. Think about the power we have at our fingertips in our tongue. We can change someone's day with our tongue, positively or negatively. Just like the blog talked about last week, sticks and stones, the tongue has a lot of negative power if it's used the wrong way. But think about the positive power. You know what it feels like when someone says to you, you can do it, God is with you. So why don't we use that for good? Why don't we use that for God's glory? That power, that privilege he gave us. Go to Philippians 2, verse 3. Philippians 2, 3. So regarding this, the Spirit had us also consider 
the root cause of godly encouragement. What's the root cause of godly encouragement? Philippians 2.3 Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is the root cause of true encouragement. Living for others. As Pastor Collins said on Sunday on the board, if you don't live for others, you're missing out on the greatest blessings in life. That's a true statement. It's a big statement. It, It literally affects your whole life and your growth and the glory that you bring to God. If you don't live for others, you're missing out on the greatest blessings in life. The Spirit had us to ask ourselves on Sunday, when you read about encouragement in the Bible, what is your first thought? Do you remember that from Sunday? That little test that came up, right? I think it was near the beginning of the message. When you read about encouragement in the Bible, what's your first thought? I failed the test on Sunday because I had to be honest, what was my first thought? It was how I like to receive encouragement and Sometimes I don't get it at times. I don't receive it. It was I. It was me. I failed that test. The flesh creeps in and thinks about self first. But when we put on Christ, when we're operating in that, in that mindset, we end up thinking of others with encouragement first. And by the way, please don't come up to me and encourage me after. Okay? Please don't do that. The whole idea is to switch from focusing on self and focus on encouraging others, right? If the Spirit leads it, that's awesome. But obviously it shouldn't be forced either. But what's the whole point? Is to be set free. Like we are set free ourselves when we encourage others and we stop worrying about our own encouragement. God will encourage you. God will take care of you if you encourage others. God has his ways. He knows exactly what you need. He knows when you need a boost. Let him bring someone in at the right time for you when you need it. But when you focus on others, that all just happens. You know, God God takes care of you. And you're happier because you're focusing on others. You're free because you're focusing on others. So crazy. So we're, we're to put on the new self, aren't we? We already saw that phrase, put on, in uh, Colossians 2, I think it was. And here's another verse in Colossians 3 on the board. Verses 9 through 10 in the NIV. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Put on that new self. That's why it's a daily task. Because we revert, right? We revert back to the flesh. How come I'm not getting this? You know, I need this or whatever. God knows exactly what you need. So why are we focusing on ourselves when he can provide it like this, whatever the need is that you have? And it's so funny how your needs just kind of dissipate when you focus on others. Our pastor pleaded with us on Sunday to not forget 
encouraging one another and that it's important. So, you know, literally, we all have to take account of that. You know, we're a family. God brought us together for a reason. We're here for a reason together, whether you like it or not, whether you match with everybody or not, whether you have whatever, personality conflicts in the church or not. God put you here for a reason. We're all here to fight the battle together, at least at this point in our lives. So take account of that. Are you encouraging your brother and your sister in Christ? We're called to do it, as we've already seen in the scriptures. And sometimes the simplest things are the most powerful. Don't underestimate, like, the power of the tongue, for example. Don't underestimate that. You might think, so-and-so doesn't want to hear from me. Right? That's what we all think about ourselves, right? Because we're basically in self-pity. But God's like, I gave you a tongue. I gave you the word. Will you go encourage somebody? You might say literally two words to somebody that are encouraging, and it might turn their attitude around, their perspective around. And you may or may not even know it. That doesn't matter. So don't forget the power in that. We've got we to gotta support each other that way. We don't do it. Not, not all the time, but sometimes you just, you know, you come to church, you go out, you might not keep in touch with anybody, you might not reach out to anybody. Why not? Encourage one another as long as the day is drawing near. Do it more and more as the day is drawing near. So recently, the Spirit also had us talking about debt and how living in debt is not part of God's plan for us, regardless of what kind of debt it is, spiritual debt, financial debt. God wants his children to be happy and free. So how can you be free if you have debt? When you have debt, it's like the opposite of freedom, isn't it? It's, a, it's basically a chain upon you, holding you down. So on the board, we've seen our debt has been paid, thank God. By grace, God ensures we aren't enslaved to debt. We've seen Romans 6.23 a couple times. By grace, God ensures we aren't enslaved to debt, in particular, the debt of our sins against God. He's removed that, thank God, once for all. And there's an interesting translation in the uh, ESV. I'll put it on the board for you. Once again, in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's a good way to put it. Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. In other words, the law demands judgment for a debt. The law demands repayment. Any good judge would say that. If you owe someone, if you're in debt to someone, it must be. And that very debt that must be paid was removed in Christ. So God doesn't want any of his children to be in any form of debt because it causes slavery. But the absence or relief of debt means freedom. And isn't that what Christ died for? Isn't that why he came? On the board, Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. 
Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. The Lord is saying, I did all this work for you. I finished it, in fact. Now take advantage of the freedom I purchased for you. Take advantage of the freedom I purchased for you. Are you going to choose to live in that freedom or not? Or are you going to go swim in the mire again, as Peter would say? Go wallow in the mire again. Look what it says on the board again. There's a choice still involved, right? It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not go back. Do not be subject again to yoke of slavery when the debt has been paid. He desires freedom for us so much. And yes, he has purchased it eternally for us. But experientially, that's where our daily walk comes in. Is it going to be by faith or by sight once again? Experiencing this freedom can only come from continual seeking, as we've seen. So on the board, this is another topic that's been on our plate, the necessity of seeking. There's, there's, not, um, there's no other choice to growing in God's grace and knowledge than seeking. There's no other choice to living in the freedom he died for you for than seeking. That's God's way. That's God's demand on us to receive and to enjoy his freedom in this world. So on the board, being subject to the flesh for now, we need to feed our souls with his truth to live in the freedom he purchased. Proverbs 8.17 and Luke 11.9 through 10. We've seen Luke 11 several times now. Ask and you shall receive, right? Knock and it will be open to you. Seek and you will find. That's how God set it up. That's how God set up this thing called life. Go to Proverbs 8, 17. He wants to know if you love me, right? He's like, do you love me more than these? Do you remember that? Do you love me more than these? Including yourself, life? Again, on the board, the necessity of seeking, being subject to the flesh for now, we need to feed our souls with his truth to live in the freedom he purchased. Proverbs 8:17. I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. Any questions? It doesn't get any clearer than that, does it? There's no like room, wiggle room out of that. There's no alternative. I love those who love me. I'm waiting for your reciprocal love. I'm waiting for you to respond. And when you respond, I'm going to give you more and more of my treasures, more and more of my secrets, more and more of my peace. Those who diligently seek me will find me. Listen, you only diligently seek someone unless you love them, if you love them. You do not diligently seek someone if you don't love them. You can try to force it, but it's not real then. And God knows our heart. But the Lord promises those that seek him will find him. And we're told to do so diligently, not passively. We're talking about heart issues here. And only God can fix this in us, by the way. You can't force it. 
All we can do is humble ourselves before him and say, God, give me more faith. God, help me seek you diligently. Help me love you more. That's all we can do in humility. We can't force it and make it happen. All we can do is bow. And in that way, God's going to give it to you, supply it to you, fill you with his spirit more. We're told to seek diligently, not passively. So we need to repent from our passive attitudes. I know I do. You know, especially in our, it's the curse of our prosperity. Prosperity is such a difficult test in America. We have all this stuff and it makes us passive. It makes us passive almost by nature. It like, it like almost pushes us to be passive. And we miss out. So God says, repent of your passiveness. Like, I want you to chase after me, God says. Look at the cross. Look what I've done for you. Let that love motivate you. I want you to chase after me. I want you to love me back. As came out on Sunday, it really is grotesque to not put God first. And what is that? That's sin. That's sin, missing the mark. How do we not put God first, right? If he's our creator, which he is, how do we not put God first? It doesn't make any sense. And yet we do it all the time. It is sin getting in the way. Any lack of praising God at all times is sin. I mean, some people think they're not sinners, but they don't understand that even failing to praise God is a sin. To be thankful, failing to be thankful is a sin. So obviously it's just wrong. Uh, he's the one that gives us life. He lets us breathe. But sin lies to us. It tells us sit back and rest and imagine the God you want him to be. You know, <laughs> it's amazing these days how many people say confidently, this is, who, this is who God is, this is what God is like. And it's totally from their imaginings. It's totally what they want him to be. And they say it so convincingly because they want it so badly. I want God to be this way so I can continue in this and this and this and so that I don't have any challenging thoughts about truth. I don't have to confront the truth. I don't have to confront people that way. So they settle for their imaginings instead of discovering who God really is in his word. On the board, we talked about knowing God. And we don't have the right to imagine anything about the holy God of the universe. The one who plainly states, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Human imagination is disastrous. It might, that might seem like a strong statement. But it's really not. It is man writing his own book. It is man saying, you know, I know what God is like on my own without the word of God. And it's, oof, the rabbit hole, the place that takes you, it's satanic thinking. It's like, I'll make God who I want him to be. And I'll make sure it fits with everyone else in the world so I don't have any confrontation. Let's face it, the flesh, generally speaking, does not like confrontation. So it invents, invents God. 
on the board. To know the Word is to know God. It's that simple. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.1 1, 1. If you knew me, Jesus said, you would know my Father also. John 8.19b To know the Word is to know God. So many people today are trapped in religion and selfishness, and they just imagine God for what they want Him to be. They totally ignore Holy Scripture. I, I, I can't even count how many people have said to me that they believe the Bible, but that they believe one passage but don't believe another. I can't even count how many people say that. I believe that one, but I don't believe that one because, and then they use whatever excuse they want to use, right? It was so long ago, or it's not for today anymore. But you believe the other one. Don't you have to make a choice? Is the Word of God true or not? Anyhow, people ignore the need to seek God, and that's just motivated by the God of this world. Satan has slipped in, used the sin nature within people to convince them they're right in their own ways. It's incredible. Go to Isaiah 40, verse 11. Satan is so slippery and sneaky and convincing. That's what deception's all about. Isaiah 40, verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? Obviously, the answer is no one. <laughs> he didn't need anybody to tell him any of that. And the Apostle Paul quoted this same passage years later on the supernatural learning about God and his magnitude. Learning about this God in this passage that didn't have to be told any of this stuff in this passage. This is stuff, if you look at it again, like in verse 12, this is stuff that man and science still have no idea about. And yet God didn't even have to be told by anyone because he is. Turn to 1 Corinthians 2.14. 1 Corinthians 2.14. Again, Paul points to this passage in Isaiah 40. And it's, it's supernatural to know the things of God. We might say to be let in on the things of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. In other words, the mind of Christ lets us in on the supernatural thoughts of God even, the the supernatural knowledge of God. And for those who seek, they find. They're let in on things that the average believer even isn't let in on because they don't seek. But we have the mind of Christ in the Word of God. Are you too familiar with that? Are you too familiar, those of you that have been in the Word for decades, are you too familiar that we've been given, granted access to the mind of Christ? I know I am. I've read this verse too many times. Maybe I need to repent from that and be grateful. Satan hates us to realize this truth in verse 16. He hates us to realize that and embrace it. We have the mind of Christ at our fingertips. You seek, you will find. Satan hates that. He hates it when we decide to seek instead of just play the game and go through the motions and be passively accepting of where we're at, so to speak. He hates when we decide to seek because we're going to know things that he doesn't want us to know and that are going to set us free. So this immovable truth came out on Sunday on the board regarding knowing God. If we want a relationship with Him, we must dine on Holy Scripture. For one example, Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. You can turn there to Psalm 1. But if we want a relationship with Him, if we, if we really do, we have to dine on Holy Scripture like it's the finest meal of our day. Familiarity doesn't lead us to do that. I was thinking during Sunday's message how relationships are investments. If they're going to be good and fruitful and happy relationships, you have to invest into them. And when we invest our time and our hearts into the Word of God, we will find the peaceful, loving relationship God wants us to have with Him. God designed us to have with them a place of true happiness and contentment. Kind of like a tree planted by the water. Don't read the verse yet. Just imagine being a tree. Imagine you're a tree and you're planted by the water. You're planted by the stream. And your roots get to dip in to the water itself and always be connected to the water. Who is Jesus Christ? That's what the picture is in Psalm 1. But this is for the one who delights in his word. Look at Psalm 1.1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. Again, the point on the board. If we want a relationship with Him, we must dine on Holy Scripture. Again, verse 2. But His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law He meditates day and night. He, this man, will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf 
does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Isn't it great when you see glimpses of God taking care of you? When you see ways that he (laughs) comes into your life and takes care of you, almost like on the back end, or with things that you weren't looking at, or things out of your control. Isn't that wonderful when you see God take care of you that way? What is that? Whatever he does, he prospers. That's a promise to the one who delights in the law of God, in verse 2. Meditates on his law. That man, the one who seeks, will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water and never goes dry. Isn't that what we want? Yeah, but we want it on our terms. But God says, plain and simple, faithful child, if you seek me, you will find me. No matter the drought or the heat of the day, the heat in this world that comes on us, I had it this afternoon with, with people and with computers. They're just like pressing on me for like three hours. I'm like, ugh, this is brutal. And then God like kind of filled my cup at the end of it. But like, how does that happen? Why does that happen? He promises to reward if we follow him. And this is something done by the Lord. Again, we can't force this. This is done by the Lord. Our only thing we can do is have a holy surrender every day. And he does it all. He plants us by the stream. So we're back to seeking God in His Word. Go to John 1.1. John 1.1. We're back to seeking God in His Word. And what came out on Sunday was the beauty about His Word is that it's self-authenticating. There are times you're going to read the Bible and you're going to be like, wow, I know that's from God. I don't know how. I mean, we know it's from God, but what I mean is like when you experience that, when you read something that says, there's no way a man wrote this. And it may not even be a prophecy. It may not even be a specific proof. Just the, the wisdom that comes from the word, you have to conclude, God just is behind this. God spells it out so perfectly all the time. And his word is self-authenticating in that way. John 1, one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So He is the Word of truth. A little bit more about this self-authenticating nature of God's Word on the board. This came out on Sunday, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God, or God-breathed, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. You just know it. (laughs) You can't explain it sometimes. You just know it when you read it. But one of the biggest mistakes we make is when we put down the Bible and we go on with our lives forgetting his word. We all do it. And that's where prayer comes in. 
are we reading the word prayerfully and even praying after we read the word that God shows us how to live in it? Even that day. Satan loves to give us distractions so that we forget about the word. He'll pull us away, be it with a man or a woman or the temptation of a lot of money or success. He will distract us. And we say in our hearts, this is what happens. I mean, if, you, if, you, if you're in bondage to the flesh at times, which we all are, this is what happens. Now that I've read my Bible for the day, let me go pursue the things I want, even if they might be to God's dismay. Let's face it. <laughs> I've read my Bible for the day, now I've got this and this and this I want to accomplish today. And you're more focused on that. You're more focused on the end result than you are on the way you get there. And that's a sign that Satan has gotten into your heart. I want it. I'll take it my way if I have to. God, I want it your way. Yeah, right. I want it my way. I'll take it my way if I have to. That's a subtle lie that a sin nature is peddling to us every day. And if we're not prayerful about it, Satan is going to wrap us up. He's going to pull us away from the truth. You can keep reading your Bible and still be pulled away from the truth. And Satan's going to try to give us what we want now so that we don't have to wait on God's way. And that ends in misery. So that's another way that Satan capitalizes on our sinful nature, which is the enemy within tries to capitalize on our impatience and our lusts. So are we going to walk by faith or by sight? We might say that's what it comes down to. On the board, by faith or by sight. 2 Corinthians 4.18 While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, they're temporary. But the things that are not seen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, For we walk by faith, not by sight. If we become distracted, we miss out on the power of God's word. If we let Satan distract us through us in nature, we miss out on the power of God's word in our lives. You can check off the box that you read your Bible today. We're not going to have any power. If you give in to this distraction of, of my way. Go to Hebrews 4.12. Hebrews 4.12. Are we going to live by faith or by sight? Are we going to have faith in the word of God? Not just read the word of God and do our duty. Are we going to believe what it says? That's faith, my friends. We walk by faith, not by sight. Do you walk by faith? Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is not just a lot of papers that you put down and walk away from. It's not. It's supernatural. It's, it's the mind of Christ, as we've seen. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing 
as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's very real and very powerful. If we're willing, if we honestly seek God and want His way, not our way. As our dear under-shepherd shared with us on Sunday, sin tries to deceive us into believing that we can live this life in absence of truth. You can be going to church every week. You can still live life in the absence of truth. That's what your sin nature is trying to convince you of. You don't need to submit, in other words, to the truth. You don't need to walk by faith. You can walk the way you want to walk as long as you keep checking the boxes. That's what sin's trying to tell you. And also that we can go long stretches of time without eating or drinking His Word, which Jesus said we need to live by. That's what eating and drinking is, right? Every day you have to eat and drink or you die. John 6.35, on the board, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. I am the bread of life. If you delight in me, you'll be like a tree planted by the stream that never goes thirsty. So our Lord, as we begin to close, our Lord wants us to truly know him. He wants us to know him, know his person, to know what he would say to us in a certain situation in life. See, like as we read the word, we, we know what the Bible says, right? We start thinking, hey, I know what it says, I know what it says. But then as you go out and live life, the circumstances of life demand the spirit guiding you and demand you to walk by faith because the circumstances of life are often not written in the book. They're unique. Every day is unique. So unless you know him and you know the way he thinks, like you might know your best friend, you might have a, 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 a close friend that you could say, you know what, I know exactly how they're going to respond to this situation. Why? Because you know them intimately. That's knowing Christ. That's knowing the Word, which is the same thing. He wants us to know Him that well. He wants us to know Him so well, as came out on Sunday, that we know the wise. Not W-I-S-E. W-Y-W-H-Y-S. The wise. He wants us to know why He wants us to do certain things. That's knowing his heart. And that is the fruit of a good relationship. And that takes investment of getting to know him. Not just reading the word to check the boxes, but seeking his heart in the word. Seeking to get to know his person. And we just don't understand him that intimately as a new believer. So he's like, you seek, you'll find. I want to show you so many things, our Father says. But you have to want to know me. I love those who love me. Proverbs 8, 17. Those who diligently seek me will find me. These things must be learned. It's a relationship. It's getting to know Jesus as your best friend. But what's the only way you're going to do that? Through the Word. It's the tool, it's the equipment 
It's the supply that he gave us. And it is a test. On the board, we were told on Sunday to synthesize these things. 1 Corinthians 2.16 For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Mark 9.23b All things are possible to him who believes. Luke 24.45a Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. All things are possible to him who believes. Are you going to walk by faith or by sight? Can you imagine that Jesus Christ wants us to truly understand his way of thinking and to even know his heart? He wants us to. He wants us to be friends. He called us friends. Remember that? In John 14, I think it is. I don't call you servants. I don't call you slaves. I call you friends. He wants us to call him friend. He wants us to want to know him that way. And so we literally know his heart. And he will grant it to those who continually seek him in humility. We can't fake God out because he looks at the heart. And if you're struggling, you've got to bow down and ask for help. You can't make it happen. You've got to bow down and ask for help. To those who don't really want it or want to know him, he will let them go without by their own choice to not actively love him and pursue him. So the greatest form of obedience, and this is what we'll close with, which came out on Sunday, the greatest form of obedience is reading our Bibles, is submitting to the Word. Holy Scripture is going to teach you. It self-authenticates. It reveals God Himself to you, to the person that diligently seeks, to the person who hears. Remember when Jesus said, He who has ears, let him hear, right? Didn't everyone have ears? What was He talking about? Are you willing? Are you listening? You can hear this voice all you want right now. Are you listening? That's an attitude of the heart. Back to that again. That's an attitude of the heart. Are you listening? It's talking about humility. Do you really want to know me? Or are you going to be religious and try to pacify me passively? Romans 10.17, we'll close with this in the English Standard Version. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. One way only. You want more faith? Get more of the word. He'll give you more faith when you humbly bow to the word for what it really is, the word of God. And let's not be familiar with that. We all, we all, we all get that way. We all get familiar with the word of God because we've heard it over and over and over. And that's where repentance has to come in every single day because we, we're, we're horrible. The flesh is horrible. It wants us to not honor the word for what it is, his very person even. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for your word and your spirit that guides us and teaches us. Open our eyes, Father, and help us 
have the right heart. We need more faith. We need you to teach us how to love you and how to love your word properly, how to never be familiar with you. Help us to always be grateful and thankful, Father, as our protection from such horrible attitudes. Help us be grateful every day with the faith of a child, Father, for what you've done for us at the cross and for revealing your very person in your word. Father, we ask that you bless us all as we go tonight. Help us to dwell on these things and pray about these things and help us spread your wonderful truth to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.